welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Thank you for joining us. Today's podcast will be guest hosted by Doug Mahoney and Paul Slager. So uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. My name is Doug Mahoney, and I, along with uh, Paul Slager, are going to be hosting this discussion. And we have as our guest, Professor Marcy Hamilton of the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking about statutes of limitations. And we all know how important statutes of limitations are in our law to provide protections to defendants and some certainty to defendants. But one area of the law where it gets a little murkier is in the area of childhood sexual abuse. And the reason for that is we know it takes victims longer to come forward than other tort victims. And so we're trying to wrestle with what's an appropriate statute of limitation in light of that. And so in Connecticut, there was a tweak of the law a couple of years ago, but the reality is that in Connecticut, a victim of childhood sexual abuse has until they turn 48 to bring a claim. And the legislature is wrestling now with, is that enough time for people to bring claims or should it be longer? Should there be these revival windows where people have an opportunity to come forward and press their claims. And the legislature's had public hearings on the issue where they've heard from victims testimony. The legislature created a task force to study the problem that Paul and I both served on. And that task force recommended the complete elimination of the statute of limitations that it be done retroactively. And so the question now is what's going to be the next step of the legislature? So Paul and I were talking about it and we thought it'd be interesting to hear from Professor Hamilton. And I'm not going to go through Professor Hamilton's questions because, or credentials, because we just would not have enough time, but just accept the fact that she's achieved every Every award or distinction you possibly can. And she's considered to be the nation's leading expert on the topic of sexual abuse uh, statute limitations. Her official title is she's the founder, CEO, and legal director of Child USA, which is a 501c3 nonprofit academic think tank dedicated to interdisciplinary evidence-based research to improve laws and public policy to end child abuse and neglect. And so thank you, Marcy, for joining us. And I'll ask Paul to lead us off with the first questions. Thanks, Doug. And I just wanted to to join Doug in welcoming you and and saying thank you to you, Professor Hamilton, for joining us this afternoon. And I I thought maybe we could start with where Doug left off, which is he mentioned that you're the CEO and founder of Child USA. Could you tell us just a little bit about what what Child USA is, what it does, and just talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in it, how you decided to start it, and so people understand what we're talking about? Sure, sure. And thanks for having me today. So I was a constitutional law scholar at Cardozo Law School for 26 years. I had a chair in public law. I had a very, very uh, nice existence, but I started looking into child sex abuse issues as part of my expertise on law and religion. I, I was looking a lot at clergy sex abuse issues. And the more I learned, the more I realized we have this really antiquated system where we are shutting down victims from getting to court long before they're ready. You know, the average age to come forward is 52. And many states 20 years ago were cutting it off at, at the age of a couple of years after the abuse or two years after age of majority. And so I started the first website on these issues, sol-reform.com. Please don't go there. Go to childusa.org because it's now outdated. But the whole point was that 
I needed a nonprofit and I needed a nonprofit that would be an institution that would be able to mount this effort for child sex abuse victims. And simultaneously, Penn called me and asked me if I would start teaching in the Fells Institute of Government. And it just all came together. So this is our fifth year. Very exciting. And we are a think tank. We're just putting the best law and the best social science together. And and you mentioned that it sounds like there has been some progress nation, you know, across the states over the years. There was a time, and I'm interested in your perspective on this, there was a time that Connecticut was sort of one of the leaders. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see Connecticut now as it fits into some of the efforts other states are doing. Where does Connecticut fall if you look across the country? You know, the real marker in time on the history of SOL reform is 2002 and the Boston Globe spotlight story. Because in 2002, the public learned that institutions we trust were covering up child sex abuse. And of course, in that case, it was the Boston Archdiocese. Connecticut was really quick. It didn't take Connecticut long to enact a limit of age 48 that was retroactive. This was way ahead of the pack. But at the same time that Connecticut was doing this age-limited revival up to 48, other states were considering windows. And windows are, you know, you've got one year, two years, five years, or if you're Vermont, no limit. But These are terms which it doesn't matter what your age is. If you're 82 and you come forward during the window, you have a shot, if you have the evidence, of getting a chance at justice. And so Connecticut was ranking pretty high. And what we do is we rank the states every year. Connecticut is now pretty much mediocre. And the most recent jump from age 48 to age 51 going forward, that three-year addition is not retroactive, it still doesn't even meet the average age. So if the average age is 52, Connecticut is still behind the eight ball for creating opportunities for justice. And when you say average age, you mean the average age to come forward. The average age to come forward, exactly. So a third come forward in childhood, maybe they tell someone, not necessarily someone in authority. A third come forward during adulthood. A third never come forward. And so out of the universe of child sex abuse victims, the average age of coming forward is 52. If it's 52 and your state law, as it still is in about in a a handful of states, is age 21, age 22, the the net result is a huge disaster for the public's interest. You know, one of the things I think that people need to understand is that SOL reform is about helping the public, not just the victims. Because if you don't open those doors for for the victims to come forward when they're ready, you're not going to learn who your perpetrators are. And that's been one of the major problems. And you mentioned Vermont, and you said Vermont had retroactively completely eliminated the statute of limitations, which is the same recommendation of the task force here in Connecticut. What did you see happen when Vermont passed that law? Well, the good news is the sky did not fall. The oceans did not part and take Vermont down to the bottom. But oddly enough, the first uh, location, United States jurisdiction to do this was Guam. Guam actually eliminated the statute of limitations backwards and forwards. Why did they do that? Because, and I worked with them on this, they had a two-year window 
open. Not one person in Guam took advantage of it. And at the end of that, the Guam legislature basically said, enough. We know we have victims. We know we have perpetrators. In fact, we know we have some from the mainland showing up on our shores, and we don't really want them here, but we can't identify them. And so Guam did it. Vermont then did it very recently. And frankly, I see this as a movement going forward. You open one window, if that wasn't enough, like California said in after 2003, you open a second window. What Connecticut has done so far is block all claims after 48 for anyone who doesn't get in early enough. I think, you know, and one of the one of the concerns that people who would oppose SOL reform legislation, one of the things you hear is this argument that the floodgates of litigation will open. And as you said, um, the sky will fall. And even in a landlocked state like Vermont, it will surely be overcome by the Atlantic. I'm just wondering, has there been a pattern of, and if so, how would you characterize the pattern of case filings? You mentioned Guam, there wasn't a single filing when the window first opened. What's happened up in Vermont? And is that a, a concern that you think is warranted? And if so, what is the nature of that concern? Well, you know, it's really interesting because in Vermont, there have been a series of claims, but there hasn't been this rush to the courts like you see with a window. When you open a window and close a window, the claims have to make it inside that time period. And so you see a larger number. Even so, there has been no state that's had over about 1,200 claims except New York. Now, New York, we were working for 16 years. And at the end of 16 years, it was widely publicized. You have millions of people. And so far, we've seen about 4,500 claims. The courts have not had to shut down. The system has not been broken, even during COVID. And so the, the response to those that say there'll be an avalanche of claims is prove it. I have testified in every state where there has been major movement, and there is always an argument from the American Tort Reform Association, and they will always argue there'll be false claims, there'll be an avalanche of claims. And in every state, I say, Please show me that evidence so that I can understand the facts. Well, the evidence doesn't exist because we don't have those problems. You um, gave us some numbers on the number of lawsuits that were just filed, but you just mentioned something else about false claims. Can you tell us what you've seen when there is window of legislation passed or statute of limitations are eliminated? What do you see with regard to false claims? It's interesting because there is this widespread assumption you'd have a lot of false claims, but we don't. So we've been tracking, I've been tracking with my law students and now with Child USA every window. And the 2003 California window had about 1150, 1,150 cases. There were anecdotal reports of five false claims. None of them made it into the courts. In Guam, which now has this unlimited open window that's been open for several years, no false claims. There are the occasional one case in a jurisdiction, but this is not what happens. People don't make up that their uncle sexually assaulted them every weekend. It, it's just not the same as the other arenas where you might see more false claims like slip and fall. This is really, it brands you, it's humiliating, it's shaming, and we just don't see it. But the other part of it is that the trial attorneys have to pay quite a bit for each of these cases typically. They're not cheap to bring. It can cost about a quarter of a million to be able to bring one of these cases. And so, they're pretty good at screening. I have been very impressed. 
And so I, I don't, I, it's just, it's not an issue. And I'm, uh, I'm not worried about it. And I'm guessing if it, if it was an issue that there were these false claims, I'm guessing the folks who would be defending the cases would bring that to our attention publicly and be highlighting that. Is that fair? You'd think so. And I've been waiting since 2003 for that, that telltale case that's going to show us about false claims and it doesn't exist. Besides, the social science doesn't support it. Children are much more likely to recant and adults will recant before they make it up because it's just humiliating. It's shaming and it's traumatic. Another argument that I've heard lodged against reform of statute limitations for child sexual abuse survivors is that the cases are hard to defend, witnesses disappear, time has passed, maybe documents are missing. I'm wondering what your response is to that concern. You know, I'm going to be honest. It's silly. It's just a silly argument. And the reason is, is that the initial burden of proof is always on the plaintiff. If the plaintiff can't make out your, the basic case, they, the defendant never has to defend themselves. And in fact, the defendants often have the only information that anybody has about this perpetrator and what they knew about them. And so if you don't open the statute so that you can get the victims and they can get discovery, none of us are ever going to figure out which are the institutions that have been endangering our children. So these are canards that they have raised in every state, but the reason the SOL movement is so strong and we see new windows opening every year is because those arguments are theoretical, they're hypothetical, and they haven't been borne out. And the opposition in in Connecticut, obviously, it's been a couple of years and nothing's happened from the legislation. I mean, who's who's opposing this? I mean, who, uh, where is the opposition coming from? Is there data uh, supporting the opposition? Can you just talk to us a little bit about what the population of opposition is in this area? So it's really unfortunate. I mean, first of all, everybody knows publicly it's the Catholic bishops who oppose this. But the ones in the back corners, in the dark corners, are the insurance industry folks. And the reason I say that's unfortunate is that we're now working on a massive project in which we are putting together the best experts in the country on what is the best standard for all you serving organizations. And as we do that, we see that insurance could be the key to prevention. It's only because of the insurance industry that we wear seatbelts. It's only because of the insurance industry that we have fancy braking systems. They want to prevent accidents. They could be part of the solution here. Instead, they've taken the short-sighted view of being much more concerned about immediate costs from prior coverage and have become part of the problem. Insurance right now is part of the cover-up. You asked about statistics. No one knows more about child sex abuse, frankly, than the Catholic bishops and their secret archives. But even more than them, the insurance industry has reams of data that they have collected over the years because that's what they do. They do risk assessment and they're not sharing that data. So, you know, we are working very hard with various insurance executives to bring the insurance industry onto the side of child protection instead of the side of protecting the perpetrators. And Marcy, Paul and I have spoken to lots of victims of sexual abuse and the way the abuse manifests themselves later in life can be really uh, substantial. These windows 
legislation or give the victim an opportunity to get financial compensation for what happens to them. But what other benefit besides money is it to the victim to be able to come forward? And what benefit is there to society for these people to be able to come forward beyond money? Well, first of all, there's a there's actually a monetary benefit in the sense that the cost of the abuse is shifted from the victims and the taxpayers over to the ones who caused it. I mean, it's just fundamentally fair financially. But the real benefit to society is twofold. One, society learns about teachers and coaches and clergy uh, and family members that are currently abusing children. Under the California window in 2003, we learned about 300 perpetrators we had never heard of before. So that's one thing. If you don't give the victims the power to come forward in court, they tend not to come forward at all. Why? Because they can be sued for defamation and they don't, they can't afford it. They can't defend themselves against the defamation suit of their perpetrator. But the upshot of SOL reform is that many survivors are empowered and many of them are empowered to say to the institutions they're suing, you would better have better child protection policies in future. Don't do this again. And so what, what the press tends not to cover, they always cover the dollars. What they don't cover is what were the policies that were changed as a result of this litigation. And there have been a lot of improvements. We're not where we should be yet, but a lot of improvements in child protection just as a result of these lawsuits. I wanted to just follow up on something you mentioned a few minutes ago that I thought was interesting. You mentioned that some of the opponents of this legislation, whether it be the elimination of statutes of limitation or opening up a window to allow survivors to come forward, that they stay, I th- using your words, I think you said they stay in the shadows or in the dark, in the dark shadows. Doug and I, as he mentioned in the introduction, both served on the Connecticut General Assembly Task Force um, studying this issue. And I know that our task force extended an invitation. We actually pleaded with representatives of the diocese, representatives of the insurance industry, of other stakeholders who may have an interest in the issue, we pleaded with them to come and talk to us and and show us data and explain what the concerns were and what the basis for those concerns were. And and only one person showed up, and that was someone from the American Tort Reform Association (laughs) in D.C., who was talking essentially about dollars and cents and, and really I think admitted that he didn't, it wasn't anything in particular about statutes of limitation for child uh, sexual abuse survivors. It was more just a question of the importance of statutes of limitation in general. So my question is, and I know that's a very long lead up, and, and I'm, I should also say, I'm used to people declining my invitations to things. So I wasn't so surprised, but when Doug was there, I thought people would accept. But I'm wondering, have, has that been your experience in other states that those who might have an interest in opposing this do so quietly and, and in back rooms rather than publicly? And, and if so, can you just talk to us a little bit about what your experience has been seeing and seeing that? So, you know, I, I've learned enough in this process that I now ask before I testify who is the representative for the insurance industry in the room and the audience? Because they're always there and they never testify except once. So last year, because the the push in Pennsylvania was so hard that finally the, the lead lobbyist for the insurance industry testified. He testified immediately after me. And he argued that you can't possibly do this because insurance companies will go bankrupt. And a member of the House immediately said, that's what we need to know. There's the data we need. Said, would you please send over the support 
for which insurance companies have gone bankrupt because victims have been able to get justice. And his quick answer was, there is no data. Well, there's no data because it didn't happen. And so the problem for the insurance industry is they can't testify believably because they don't have any data that supports their point. Our friend from the American Tort Reform Association, I see in every state, uh, and he always leads with false claims end of the legal system and the end of the world. And every time in public and afterwards, I approach him and say, I really would like to see your data. I really care about data because if you're right, I'm going to have to rethink the way that I'm thinking the public policy here. They don't have any data because they're wrong. They just don't like torts. And they're afraid that if they do the right thing by child sex abuse victims, that all of a sudden there's going to be this flood of torts. But Child sex abuse is different from just about everything else, and we have the science to prove it. In fact, uh, Marcy, uh, that gentleman from the American Tort Reform Association testified at our hearing like 18 months ago that because of the passage of the elimination in Vermont, there is an outfit called the Sunrise Family Resource Center in Vermont that provides all kinds of social service activities that was now going to have to go out of business. And I Googled them yesterday and they appear to be doing well and very, very well. And I'm providing, <laughs> still providing all the same services that he testified that we're going to be stopping the services. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But you mentioned that one of the benefits is identifying the perpetrators as a result of the Wendell. Can you tell us about who these perpetrators are? Who are they? Why is it important to identify them? What kind of numbers are we talking about? So we've just finished a comprehensive review of the literature. And according to our social scientists, one in five girls and one in 13 boys are sexually abused. So this is a huge social problem. And the prevalence is what few parents grasp. It's what few in the public grasp. People still think this is a highly unusual thing. But how do you identify a perpetrator? It's, well, typically it's a guy in the 90 percentile rate, but it's someone that you would trust. It's someone that's gained your trust. It's someone that you would want to spend time with your children. So the real problem is that to get access to a child, you have to prove to the universe around that child that you are charming and trustworthy. And that's what they do, whether they're a priest or they're a teacher or they're a coach. So, you know, my view and my goal, and then I'll just be able to retire, is to someday be able to get a Super Bowl commercial. And I want in the Super Bowl commercial, the leading sports athlete, you know, of our time to stand there and say, this happens all the time, because that's the one commercial I know millions would watch. And we just... Adults are continuing to trust their instincts. You cannot trust your instincts because someone who wants sexual access to your child is going to do everything they can manipulate to manipulate you and to manipulate your child to get that access. Let's hope if that Super Bowl commercial happens, it's longer than the Reddit ad we saw in yesterday's Super Bowl. <laughs> yes. uh, that, would truly, that would be really incredible. And, and I think it would go you know, a long ways towards removing a stigma, which I know is also a part of your mission in, in opening up and extending and reforming statute of limitation is to allow survivors to come forward and, and to reduce the stigma. Can, can you talk a little bit about how statutes of limitation reform can do that? So what, what we're really working on with SOL reform is to make sure that the public understands that Child sex abuse is something that results in extreme trauma. That's just the science. And what is the trauma? The trauma results in PTSD, depression, suicide ideation, 
substance abuse, alcoholism, criminality, even abusing children as an adult. And so if you take all of that together, it's very easy for the public to look at a victim who's coming forward. And this is what's happening in the Boy Scout cases. And to say, well, I'm not going to believe that person. They're a drug addict. Or I'm not going to believe that person because, you know, they've been mentally unwell their whole lives. Well, hello, it's the cause and effect of child sex abuse, which we do not adequately credit to these victims. And so what I hope the public will come to understand is the cost to society of the trauma is so extreme. For each victim, it can cost about $800,000 in both treatment costs and in lost opportunities. For the culture, it's trillions. If we prevent abuse, we can save the whole society dollars and cents. If we don't, we're just going to continue to pay. And also we're going to continue to suffer because we all suffer when we hear about this happening again and again and again. So Marcy, we promise not to take too much of your time. So there's only one more question for me. You just mentioned the Boy Scouts and there's been some suggestion that that case, as well as these large diocesan cases should be treated as class actions, that it would be more efficient and more fair to have them as class actions for all the victims. What are your thoughts on class actions for these kinds of cases? Class actions are cruel uh, to the victims of child sex abuse, and here's why. The victims of child sex abuse are who they are at the time of the abuse. They may be from a broken home. They may be from a very strong home. Either way, the way that sex abuse operates on the child through their life is is specific to each child. So it's one thing to have a class action about the way in which a particular drug has affected those who had a heart attack, right? But it's a completely different thing to say, we're gonna throw all the sex abuse victims into a pot and we're going to say that they're all similarly situated because, but they're not, not at all. You need to treat each of these victims as an individual case, number one. Number two, society needs to understand both sides. They need to understand what's the history that led to this abuse in this case. Was this child left alone? Was this child tricked? Was this child so poor that there was no system that could have possibly have prevented this? Or, and on the other side, society needs to understand there's a woman who's 35, who is completely incapable of leaving her home. The reason is because she was sexually assaulted as a child. She's different from the person who is now functional, but has other problems. So the message to child sex abuse victims is that each of you has your own story. You choose when to tell it and your own set of damages. And the the class action approach while it may be good for some lawyers, is, in my view, bad for society and bad for the victims. And if I may, and and we'll wrap it up after this, but there's no way I'm letting Mahoney get the last question. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, if you could just talk for a couple of minutes about is, you know, I've been, I've admired Child USA, your think tank for a long time. And I know we focused today on talking about statute of limitation reform, but I also know that Child USA's uh, efforts go far beyond that and that Child USA's interests in other areas of child protection. And I wondered if you could just talk to us for a couple of minutes about some of the other areas that you and your organization focus on as it relates to child protection and advocacy for children. Well, thank you so much. Child USA has organically grown in a way that just makes me so proud and blessed. We look at issues involving medical neglect, 
both religiously based and also vaccine avoidance, which is, as we now all understand, a public health menace uh, if we're not getting adequate vaccination. We also look at, we have the Game Over Commission, which is trying to get to the bottom of understanding what happened with the USA Gymnastics Larry Nassar scandal. How could so many institutions let hundreds of children down and how can we fix it? So we put together 16 of the top experts in the country from a variety of fields. Later in 2021, we will be releasing an expert report on what's wrong in Olympic sports and what we need to do to fix it. So, you know, our universe is child abuse and neglect, and what are the really, really highly educated PhDs, experts saying, and then how do we translate that for the public? So I really appreciate you asking. And I think that we said this at the beginning, but your website's childusa.org. And your website is so substantive in terms of providing real good information about the topic of child abuse in a variety of capacities as you just talked about. So if people are interested in learning more about this topic, you know, I think they really should visit childusa.org and, and play around on the website and see what they can find. But Marcy, for Paul and I, this has been an absolute thrill to have you here. It's a real honor to have you talking to us. And uh, thank you very much. And we appreciate all your time and all your work that you do on behalf of kids. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you. So much. Thank thank you. you. And let me know if I can help in Connecticut. Here I am. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org.